Well, this afternoon being uh, the first Sunday of a month, um, we will be returning to our first Sunday Psalm series. Uh, we have just spent uh, three, uh, three first Sunday Psalms messages in the 37th Psalm, which was a lengthy Psalm. Today we'll be turning our attention to uh, the 38th Psalm. Uh, one of two psalms with the exact uh, inscription uh, of Psalm of David for the memorial offering, that as well as Psalm 70. Let us hear from that psalm before we continue. A psalm of David for the memorial offering. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath, for your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down upon me, on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head. Like a heavy burden, they are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate. All the day I go about mourning. For my sides are filled with burning and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. O Lord, all my longing is set before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart throbs, my strength fails me, and the light of my eyes, it also has gone from me. My friends and companions stand aloof from my plague, and my nearest kin stand far off. Those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and mediate treachery all day long. But I am like a deaf man. I do not hear. Like a mute man who does not open his mouth. I have become like a man who does not hear and in whose mouth there are no rebukes. But for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord, my God, who will answer. For I said, only let them not rejoice over me, who boast against me when my foot slips. For I am ready to fall, and my pain is ever before me. I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin. But my foes are vigorous. They are mighty, and many are those who hate me wrongfully. Those who render me evil for good accuse me, because I follow after good. Do not forsake me, O Lord, O my God, do not be far from, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. Let us pray. Our Father, blessed be your name, you who has given us this word. As we study this passage, as we have heard these words, help us to recognize them for what they are. And as we look into this passage, we ask that you would guide us into the truth that is being spoken to us by your word. We ask that you would strengthen and increase our faith. We ask that you would mold each of us according to your purposes and plans. Would you give us in our minds and our hearts from your word, a fresh revelation of Christ Jesus. And would the 
declaration of this message be true to your word such that it is the word of God. Would you guide this preacher? Would you chain him to your word that he might freely declare your truth with clarity, with accuracy, with understanding? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In Psalm 38, we turn to yet another psalm that is a psalm of lament. Sometimes these particular psalms are not the most comfortable to read because they go into the depths of the reality of the human experience and of our pain and of our suffering and here in this case in our own sinfulness. The psalmist here is not hiding his pain. He is not expressing what, it, what is, has been regarded as the biggest lie in, in the world. That biggest lie in the world being, fine, and you? We have a dose of reality in this psalm. We don't have throughout the Psalms a picture of what we liked, what we kind of want Christianity to be all the time, which is a happy, clappy, smiley face. We have a great dose of the real pain and difficulty that the psalmist is experiencing. This is a psalm of lament. And while there is a little bit of a hint of reference to the enemies, This is one in which the psalmist's lament and distress is not with regards to the enemies who are surrounding him, who are going after him, most likely unjustly in other psalms. Here, this is one in which he is lamenting his own condition. He is lamenting his own sinfulness. He is greatly grieved and overcome with the guilt of sin and the weight of it. Many commentators have asked what particular occasion here is being referenced in the life of David, this being a psalm of David. The inscription also tells us something about for the memorial offering. We don't know a whole lot about what that is. We cannot speculate and try to identify a particular point in David's life in which this is referring to some sort of specific sin. We, we might say that it is after the revelation of his sin with regards to Bathsheba and her husband and the many ways that he had uh, sinned against God in sinning against them. Or it could be with reference to his own abandonment by his son or other times where He had been rebelled against and he's turning to his own guilt. But we don't have a a way of identifying that. As we mentioned a moment ago, we really don't know what this memorial offering is. But obviously it has something to do with remembrance because that's what a memorial is. It's a remembrance. It's remembering something. Maybe it is remembering sin. Regardless of the particular occasion... I think we can all agree when Charles Spurgeon says this, David felt 
as if he had been forgotten of his God, and therefore he recounted his sorrows and cried mightily for help under them. There is an element of concern about temporal judgment and suffering on David's account. But more than anything, what is being pointed to is the travail of his own soul over the immense weight of his guilt. His own travail, his own internal difficulty, his own struggle with his sinfulness. Also, as we'll see, there is dimly and only analogically, that is not directly, a reference to Christ and his suffering on our behalf. The psalm was broken up into roughly three different sections. And again, th- these are um, often at the discretion of the, re- uh, of the reader or the commentator or the interpreter, because psalms are notoriously hard to come up with structures because they're poetry. And poetry belies the, the, the rigid, logical, reformed mind. But in verses 1 through 8, we have an opening complaint. And in verses 9 through 14, we have uh, the psalmist speaking of himself as an outcast. One who is being outcast and abandoned not only by his Friends, but also feeling abandoned and outcast by his God. He also expresses that in the first part as well, the outcast. And in verses 15 through 22, we have a glimmer of hope, a little bit of light through the crack in the cave in which he is expressing his singular hope. In which is another hope, a hopeful look to heaven in the midst of expressing his griefs, closing where he began, crying out to God to be his Savior. When we open up in verse, here in verse 1, we see the very opening concern. And we see both an outward and inward burden on David's part, on the psalmist's part. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. And he continues, for your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down upon me. Spurgeon says of this, he means both bodily and spiritual griefs, but we may suppose especially the latter, that's the spiritual griefs, for these are most piercing and stick the fastest. And with this prayer that which he opens, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger. First of all, he's stating God's anger and his wrath. He is stating, the psalmist is not trying to beat around the bush regarding the guilt of his sin or trying to justify it. In stating, in your wrath and in your anger, he is affirming God's displeasure with sin. He is expressing that God does not not take sin lightly. God is absolutely holy without one single spot of sinfulness. And so the smallest little spot of sin is, well, from our perspective, finite, is, from that perspective, it is infinite. God is fully justified if you were to choose to wipe him out. And he's recognizing that, which he pleads here for mercy. 
He pleads for mercy. That is, there's something I deserve. Please don't give me that which I deserve. He's not going, but, 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 but. But he's recognizing his own sinfulness before God and stating, that the, stating the justice of God and doing as he pleases. It's a recognition of this truth. And we're also going to see in this psalm how it points us to the glorious and wonderful grace of God in Christ Jesus. But the problem is not that we as humans are good men who are in trouble with a bad God. But we are bad people who are under the wrath of the good God who created the heavens and the earth in and of ourselves. And so he opens up with a cry for mercy, indicating he understands God is merciful. He understands God is gracious. And he has, as we'll see, he has confidence in that, even though at the moment he is struggling with the weight of his own sinfulness. Which is something we as Christians quite frequently experience. The weight of our own failures. The weight of our own sinfulness. And we see that in verses 2 through 8 in his opening complaint. Which he, in which he expresses his concerns in verse 2. He states, for your arrows have sunk into me and your hand has come down upon me. He's giving the overall picture here. He is feeling the weight of the guilt of his own sin when he speaks of arrows sinking into him and his hand coming upon him. He is speaking of the pain and he is speaking of the burden. When we speak of the arrows The idea of an arrow piercing is not that of something that is pleasant. I have never been pierced by an arrow, and I pray I never will. I did have a doctor's visit uh, on Friday, and I've been having some back issues. And he did did a little bit of poking with some needles to uh, try to relieve the muscle tension. And that hurt. I could not imagine how difficult it would be to be pierced by an arrow. And while David has not been pierced by an actual arrow, because um, I don't, can't recount a single instance where that happened to him, it is speaking of, of the pain and the conviction of his own sin, of seeing his own failures in light of God's law. And he is also burdened because his hand has come down upon him. That's an expression of the weightiness of it. He is burdened and weighed down with it. And we could look at this primarily in terms of the physical effects. But as we're going to see, it is far, far, far more than that. It is in the sense of his own sinfulness, of his own rebellion. We might look at this primarily as the penitential cry of an unbeliever who is coming to faith in Christ. No doubt that that is something one experiences. But I would ask us, who among us doesn't feel the weight of our own rebellion against God, even in the face of his immense grace for us? 
Indeed, if God were to strike us down, he would be fully justified. Yet because of his mercy to us in Christ Jesus, he doesn't and he won't. He sent his son to die for us because of his covenant love for us. In the the light of our own sinfulness, we have every reason like David to say, such as in verse 1, Rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Or again in verse 9, O Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. Or in verse 21, do not forsake me, O Lord, O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. That's the very reason one can offer this prayer. David is expressing understanding of God's covenant love. And in verses 3 through 5, we then see the specific results of this weight, of this pain, and in this weight. He says, There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. We see three basic ideas. You may have heard me emphasizing the word because. Those becauses are the three different ideas of the expression of this pain. That first of all, there is no soundness in his flesh because of his indignation. Specifically, there's no health in his bones because of my sin. That's the second aspect. But because of God's wrath upon humanity, because we exist in and of ourselves in a condition of sin, God's wrath is indeed upon the human's race, the human race. Romans 1 is not a story of the pathway to God's wrath. It is all of that is evidence of God's wrath upon the entire human race. It's not speaking of a particular group of people or a particular culture. It's the whole human race. That's not the pathway to wrath. That is evidence of God's wrath upon humanity. The very presence of sin. He makes points, he point, he points one particular aspect of sinfulness. That is of the exchanging of natural relations between man and woman. As a poignant example of that. But then he also goes on to name other things that we kind of give a passing eye to. That we kind of will say, well, it's not as bad as that, such as gossip, such as slander, such as bearing false witness. All of those things are listed as evidence of God's wrath. See, that's the human nature. We have no strength in and of ourselves because God's wrath is upon the human race. There's no soundness in our flesh. We have no soundness in and of ourselves because of God's wrath against the human race, because of our rebellion against him in the garden, evidenced by our continuing rebellion against him. It's the reasons Roman one, it's just mentioned, it's the reason Romans 1 is our condition. Because of sin, there is no health in bones. Why is it we get sick? Why is it that we die. Why is it we can do everything right, or at least as best as we possibly can, 
eat all the right things, exercise a a minimum of 150 minutes a week, never smoke, never, never even have a drop of alcohol, never engaged in drugs, and next thing you know, we've got cancer or heart disease or some other awful thing. Was, didn't we not do everything right? Why is it that happens? Because of the presence of sin. Not necessarily some sort of specific sin to which we can point, but the very fact of our sinfulness, is the very reason our stomachs, our lungs, our livers, even our brains go wrong because of the sinful condition in which we exist. And so thus, we have no health in our bones. David is probably feeling the weakness because of sin. Also recognizing the deeper aspect He's recognizing the pain and the weight of his sinfulness. What we see here is a recognition of neediness. Our neediness should be one in which it brings us to go to verse 1, to verse 9, to verses 21 and 22. To look outside of ourselves and look to God. But if we spend all of our time looking inside ourselves and introspecting, looking for reasons within ourselves to give us comfort of God's care and God's grace, we are going to live in this psalm. That is where we will live. We will not go to verse 1 or 9 or 21 and 22. We'll spend all of our time in those others. There's one particular figure from church history, David Brainerd. He was the son-in-law-to-be of Jonathan Edwards. David Brainerd was a highly introspective person. If you read his journals, it's like riding a roller coaster. One moment, the face of God is upon him, and he believes he's finally experienced regeneration. The very next day in the next entry, He is at the lowest of the lows and he believes God's wrath is upon him and he will never find God's grace. Highly introspective individual. In order to try to cure himself of his own sin-sick condition, he decided one day during winter in New England, he would stay up all night outside praying. So happened a blizzard came that night. He stayed outside in the blizzard. Well, he made it through the blizzard. He died shortly thereafter. This is why when we understand the the weight of our sin, we need to go to verse 1 and verse 9 and verses 21, 22. Because this, what we see in here is what is in us, in and of ourselves, and it's not pretty. In fact... He uses a, a language a little bit later in verse 4, actually, in which he says this. I am in over my head. It says, my iniquities have gone over my head. Have you ever been in a situation where you are, proverbially speaking, in over your head? 
I think all of us have been there in different ways and in different times. Sometimes we always feel it. In my work as a hospice chaplain and here and even here in my work as a pastor, there's things that come across my path and I'm thinking, I have no idea what to do with this. I'm in over my head. But I look to others and get help. And here David is recognizing that he's in over his head and it's too heavy for him to bear. Because when we look inside, what we see in the psalm is what is there. There's a lot of rottenness. There's a lot of festering. It's a recognition in the psalm that we are not called upon to bear our own iniquities, my brothers and sisters. There is no making any atonement by anything we do for our sin, for it is over our head. While we need to reconcile and repent, we need to pay restitution where it's necessary. That's but the effect of our union with Christ. We need to turn to him, the cross of Jesus Christ. Do we not hear the neediness in this passage? Do we not hear the weakness? The temptation is to do what the the stereotype of what they like to do uh, the stereotype of what's done across the pond the pond on the other side of our country in the united kingdom where it said we just need to put on the stiff upper lip and we need to just bear through it and here he says i cannot bear through it We must be open and bare before God because we're already open and bare before him. David wrote this psalm and it was put on public for all to see. So we must bear with one another. We must not be afraid of showing our weakness because that is what we are. And the third the third reason for his being struck with arrows and God's hand upon him is found in verse 5 my wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness that is again that is in and of ourselves every time we turn away from the goodness of God in Christ Jesus and turn to ourselves and that takes many many different forms we are expressing foolishness Indeed, that is the human condition. The human race could be described as a pack of fools. Even we as believers find ourselves many times struggling with that. In the book of Galatians, in which the churches in the region of Galatia were beginning to entertain false teaching regarding the gospel, that they could improve upon Christ's work for them with their works and add, say, faith plus the works. Paul basically said, you're a pack of fools. Oh, you foolish Galatians. Our consciences, they speak against us and they reveal the rottenness of our own estate. And this is a very painful condition 
There's no, no ulcers, cancers, or putrefying sores can match the unutterable vileness and pollution of our iniquity, of our sinfulness. Our own perceptions, Spurgeon says, have made us feel this. We write what we do know and testify what we have seen. And even now we shudder to think that so much of evil should lie festering deep within our nature. So here he's expressing his neediness. Verses 6 through 8, we have another result. Which he says this. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate all the day I go about mourning. For my sides are filled with burning. There is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. He's expressing this. I've got nothing to offer because I'm in all pain. And we have an escalation of pains here. He starts off utterly bowed down and prostrate. Moves to his sides are filled with burning. Or in other translations, he has a loathsome disease. And in the third aspect, he's feeble and crushed. And utterly bowed down and prostrate in and of himself, what does he find but mourning? With a U. M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. But finds mourning and grief. Because that is in and of himself, what we, and in himself what he has to offer. In and of ourselves, what we have to offer. We have and he has sides filled with burning, sin sick, not having soundness in the flesh, and he's feeble and crushed, weak and beside himself, not having anything to perceive that he could offer. Remembering what he had just said that his wounds stink and fester. That is, they, as my grandmother would say sometimes, they stinketh. And we have in this a tumult of his heart. But there's also in this recognition, because of verse 1 and verse 9 and verses 21 and 22, in the recognition of this, there is blessedness. Because if we look at it rightly, it turns us outside of ourselves. Because the blessedness of weakness, for we look outside of ourselves to another who is greater than us. There's a classic musical that was put on screen in a day when uh, really long movies that were over two hours, sometimes up three hours long, they would have a little break in between called an intermission. You'd step out and go to the bathroom and do all those kinds of things. One of those movies was called The Fiddler on the Roof. There's a really fun song in that in the beginning uh, where the father of the family desires to be riches. And he goes and he, he's doing this kind of dance. And he says, if I were a rich man. But in reality, if we understand our relationship to God right, It would be better for us to sing, if I were a poor man. Recognizing our poverty and our need. 
Spurgeon again says, A man who has pain in his bones tosses to and fro in search of rest, but he finds none. He becomes worn out with agony, and in so many cases, a sense of sin creates in the conscience a horrible unrest which cannot be exceeded in anguish except by hell itself. And we think of this, the illustration here. As we age, we begin feeling more and more the weakness of our own flesh. And so it is with our own sinfulness. As we grow in Christ, one of the things we begin to recognize more is the weakness of ourselves. One of the greatest markers of growth in Christ is recognition of how far we are from the standard that God has laid out and how much we need our Lord Jesus Christ. It's one of the greatest marks of growth. We now move to verses 9 through 14 where Paul utters another prayer. I mean, David utters another prayer in which he says, O Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. We have an expression of mourning, but expressing here where his hope truly lies and for what he wants. And he goes to his source of where he can find any comfort. And that is his Lord and his God. The hope of his mourning is the God who created heaven and earth. All my longing is before you. And all my sign is not hidden from you. That is, he has made it known, and God is fully aware. There is no hiding from God. And so there is every reason to not seek to hide from him. Fully aware. All my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. We have a stark realism here. A stark realism that says, I am hurting and I'm not trying to pretend. And Why he does this? It's because of the fact that he is feeling the outcast. Abandoned by his friends. And the heavens appear to him to be as brass. That is, his prayers just seem to bounce off of heaven and come back to him. We see in verse 10, my, st- my strength throbs, my heart fails me, and the light of my eyes, it is also gone from me. My friends and companions stand aloof from my plague, and my nearest kin stands far off. He feels himself the outcast. He has no strength in and of himself, for his strength fails him. And, he, and he's blind, and he, he's unable to see as he needs to see. And, when he, and in, in terms of his own struggles, whatever they may be, if he goes to his friends, they, 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 they will come to him, and they will say something like, we'll get back to you. And never get back to him. They stand aloof. Or maybe he just doesn't have the strength to go to them and they see he's struggling and they go and they do the walk where they just kind of very slowly kind of walk around 
even his family is far off. At a minimum, this is his perception. And he has no and, <clears throat> and so he has no help from others who can come to his aid for his need. I would say, do we not know someone else for whom his friends stood aloof in his greatest hour of suffering? Our Lord Jesus Christ. For his friends, those whom he called his friends, they took off running. One of them gets the one of them gets the put on the spotlight for denying him explicitly, but the others have denied him implicitly. So there's that. And we're going to get back to that idea in a moment. We also see in verse twelve he has enemies about those who seek my life lay lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all day long. He is feeling the weight. Of those who are against him. And for us there are always enemies against us. In particular the world. The flesh and the devil. Our own sinfulness. Our own sin. And the enemies of the gospel. Which is all the more reason. Verse 1. Verse 9. And verses 21 and 22. Is where we must go. We see in verses 13 and 14. And David himself, though, experienced, before we go there, experienced many different times where he was being pursued. In all those, he felt distress. And in each one of those, he turned to his Lord. But here in this face, he's seeing they're seeking his, they're seeking his life. And he does not say here, I am innocent. But he's recognizing that if God were to use those enemies to strike him down, God would not be unjust in so doing. Verses 13 and 14. We see that even with those enemies setting traps, he's unable to avoid them. He says... I am like a deaf man I do not hear, like a mute man who does not open his mouth. I become like a man who does not hear, and his mouth are no rebukes. That he's not able to hear or perceive when trouble comes his way. And when he does perceive it, perceive it he doesn't have any words or any way to get around it. He's weak. He's hurting. He has no strength against the enemy. And my brothers and sisters, we fool ourselves if we think we can take on in and of ourselves the world, the flesh, and the devil. We like to read the Old Testament stories. I've been reading a book by a former Lutheran pastor. Uh, It's a very uh, looking at Jacob and Esau. Uh, The book is called Limping with God. Uh, A former Lutheran pastor by the name of Chad Bird. He's a former Lutheran pastor because he disqualified himself from pastoring. And he's looking, and in his life, he looks back on his own failures. He's not trying to teach anybody. He's largely being meditative of 
I did these wrong things. But in this, he's looking at, at Jacob. And he speaks of limping with God. And we will often, and he speaks in there, and I've said this before on other occasions, of when we read the Old Testament stories, we like to fashion ourselves as in place of some of the heroes of the story. When we see the story of Gideon, we like to place ourselves in Gideon's feet. But if we read Gideon right, we actually see Gideon was kind of a devious guy too. Gideon was, Gideon had some uh, unbelief aspects going with him. We also will look at uh, David and the story of David and Goliath and see, I'm going to be David in this story. And we take on the world and the flesh and the devil and we throw our stone and the stone bounces off of the enemy and he comes and, metaphorically speaking, cuts off our arms. Because the story, because we're not David, we are helpless, rebellious Israel. What we need is Jesus. We need him to be our victor. We cannot avoid those traps to our own weakness. We must recognize that in and of ourselves, we are deaf, we are mute, we can't take it on. And then in verses 15 through 22, he moves on to the singular hope that he has which is expressed in this. But for you, O Lord, I do wait. It is you, O Lord, my God, who will answer. Add verse 15 to the places we must turn. It states that it states that he has a hope and a confidence. And that is this. I will wait for you, for it is God who will answer. There is great confidence expressed here in the God who answers when one is distressed. But why would God answer why would he even have this why would our psalmist even have this confidence has not the psalmist confessed his own awful estate and said don't take me down in your wrath it's because the psalmist understands something the psalmist understands that the almighty God who created the heavens and the earth and who brought us into covenant with himself is rich in grace. He sent the son, our Lord Jesus Christ, because of his love for us. And so we, can, we, like David, can cry to him in our neediness. But I am like a, uh, while we are deaf and mute, for you, O oh Lord, do I wait. And he also fully expects that the enemies will not have the final victory. From our perspective, the world, the flesh, and the devil will not have the final victory. Why? Again, because Jesus came, because he died, because he rose from the dead. Because of what is commonly recognized during this season of the year in which we are in. In which we commonly call it Christmas, I like to call it the festival of the incarnation. The incarnation of the Son of God into human history is one of us who lived as one of us who as uh, who lived as one of us, who died as one of us, who rose for us, and who is returning for us. That is the reason why we have this hope. 
And this singular hope is singular because the psalmist doesn't have anything to offer. Once again, verses 17 through 19. I am ready to fall and my pain is ever before me. I confess my iniquity. I'm sorry for my sin, but my foes are vigorous. They are mighty and many are those who hate me wrongfully. Those who render evil me evil for good accuse me because I follow after good. We see that he is ready to fall. And while it's true of the unbeliever, in our own arrogance, we take our eyes off of Jesus all the time and onto ourselves and once again find the despair of our own condition in and of ourselves, which brings us to look to Jesus again. We see his own awareness. I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin. Here the psalmist addresses his own sin and confesses. He takes ownership of his sin. I confess and I am sorry. There are environmental factors that don't help, but still our sin lies upon us. Even the sin in the garden, we were there. In Adam, we were there. He represented us. And so he confesses and expresses his sorrow. He doesn't pass it off on others. And how often do we hide our sin, not just from others, but we hide it from God. We'll say, it's not so bad. But rather, we must go before him because he is rich in grace and will give us the joy of his forgiveness. But we see also here the utter importance of being authentic and real before God and others. How often we try to hide, whether, as we mentioned earlier, behind a stiff upper lip or maybe hide behind deflection. This is what deflection is. Well, what about this guy? That's deflection. You may have heard that as whataboutisms. Sure, that may be a thing, but that's not what we're talking about. Would be God's answer, most likely. Or focusing on others. Deflecting. Well, it's not as bad as that. Or a sense of, but there's just all this stuff going on and I couldn't help it. Rather, we must be open and honest with our Lord. Or we might hide behind a sense of self-righteousness. Of saying, well, I'm bad, but I'm not as bad as the others. Or we might hide behind a sense of pietism in which we say, okay, I'm just going to, I'm going to do better and try harder and try to undo my sin. Rather than going to our Lord, confessing and seeking his help and his aid. Sometimes in our own guilt and our own struggle and our own sense of trying to hide behind sin, 
It might even discourage others from finding such rest. Of saying, well, you just need to be strong. Back when I was a chaplain in hospice, there was a terrible situation where there was a patient who was in her late 30s and she was about a week away from dying and her mother was there. They had been estranged, but I was inside and the mother went outside and next thing you know, I heard her bawling outside and I went outside and the family was around her and they were saying, you got to be strong, get up, you got to be strong, you got to be strong for her. I pushed them all away and I said no. And I just got down on the ground with her. That's finding weakness. Expressing weakness. And then in, ver- and then in verses 19 and 20, we see his foes are causing problems. They have more strength than him and are able to do him harm. They have wrongful hatred towards him. We also see that they don't return in kind. That he has done good, but they return evil to him. In fact, they take the good he's done and accuse him of evil. Verses 19 and 20. And then we go to 21 and 22, and we have a return to the beginning, a cry for mercy, in which he says this, Do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. It's a recognition here of God is our salvation. He is our forgiveness. He is our hope and our righteousness. And recognizing what are we, what he is saying, what am I without you? So do not forsake me. And if we are honest, we will say, I know the weight of my sin. And feel that pain. But also recognize, and, and, and at the same time, recognizing this truth. There is one who felt this pain on our behalf who had no reason to feel this pain. Our Lord Jesus, who knew no sin, became for us sin, as 2 Corinthians 5.21 states. For our sake he made him, made him to be sin, who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God, while he had no guilt of sin. In and of himself, by his acts, by his entire being, he felt the weight of God's wrath against sin. He felt that. He endured that agony for us. While we cried, do not forsake me, O Lord. Our Lord Jesus Christ said from the cross, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is, according to his humanity, Jesus was forsaken of God, bearing the weight of our iniquity. Did he not know that weight and pain of God's wrath on our behalf? Yes, he did. Was he not abandoned and forsaken by those close to him? Yes, he was. Was he not falsely accused? Yes, he was falsely accused. Was evil returned to him for the good he did? Yes, all of this is true. 
If there is any unjust suffering that has experienced, it was his suffering, at least from a human perspective. But because Christ did this for us, in our grief and guilt of our sin, we can now say, rebuke me not in your anger. We can say, O Lord, all my longing is for you. We can say, but for you, O Lord, I do wait. And we can say, do not forsake me, O my Lord. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. We can say that God is our salvation. So brothers and sisters in Christ, the Spirit is still working to turn us to Christ and away from ourselves. For that's what the Holy Spirit has come to do, is to testify of the righteousness of God, testify of our need of Christ, and testify of Christ, and to turn us to Him. And He, and we are, and he is always awakening us to the reality of our weakness. Is one of the great things that He does. It's the, and the moment we start rejoicing in ourselves, we will likely face a good walloping like David expresses here. And brothers and sisters, when we spend our time looking inward for reasons to hope in God's goodness, this is the result, my brothers. Despair and sisters, despair. That is the result. When we look inside for reason for hope, we can see on the surface some good things God's doing. We go in a little deeper, there's despair. So like our psalmist, we look at we must look outside of ourselves. Because our Lord endured this, we have this assurance that the God of all grace is pleased to receive us through Jesus Christ to be reconciled to him. We will often find in ourselves difficulty with knowing God's grace. We'll say, have I done A, have I done B, and have I done C? Forgetting that this is the first question of assurance. Is God in Christ Jesus pleased to receive sinners by faith? Yes. That is a resounding yes. And that should give us all the more reason looking at this, knowing this is the human condition. We look upon the world around us and we may find ourselves distressed with all sorts of things happening, which every Christians throughout history have found themselves doing. Seeing the immensity of sin in the human condition. And one of our first reactions might be that of anger, might be that of some sense of wrath. And to be concerned and distressed by sin is only right. But for more than that, we should recognize Psalm 38 as the human condition. And recognize in and of ourselves, that is us. And there should be compassion. And there should be a sense of, I'm a beggar like them. But I have found water and I have found food. And compassion to bring Christ to them.
that Christ might enter into them. So brothers and sisters, let us remember our need and then turn to the one who fills that need. Let us pray. Father, blessed be your name. For our Lord Jesus Christ has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. He has took upon us himself, our nature, simple human nature. And he lived a perfect life and died for us and rose from the dead. And our sin has been removed and his righteousness has been counted on our behalf. Your spirit has breathed life into us. Help us to never turn from that. And help us when we do to return. And help us to declare that great truth to one another. And help us declare that great truth to those who know it not. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.